0: okay good afternoon thanks for joining me this is greg lois and if you're here today it's to talk a little bit about a fun topic fraud in new york so thanks for joining me today's march 15th welcome aboard uh we're going to be talking about fraud today so i hope you're ready to have a good time i'm going to go very briefly through the jurisdictional standards or the burdens that we need to show the court in order for a fraud finding to be sustained I'm going to talk about recent case decisions and because I'm vain, I'm going to be mainly talking about decisions and outcomes and rulings that this firm has gotten in the last year or so and I've got some interesting ones to share with you. Um I'm going to give you as much practical advice on getting fraud uh in your cases as I possibly can. I'm trying to um make this useful uh just thinking about who the audience is. Um you know the deep thought of the day really is that raising fraud is one of the key ways that we can avoid absurd results. Uh, and in this system, the New York workers comp system, um, you're going to see a lot of absurd results, uh, mainly because uh, physicians, uh, claimants are pushing to stay out of work for as long as possible and get any benefits they're not always entitled to. So we're going to need to use fraud strategically to challenge and push back on that. Uh, last thing, this is completely and totally live. Uh, So, uh, my intention is for you to ask questions and me to answer as many questions as I can. Uh, We're using the GoToWebinar system here and you can type questions in as I'm speaking and I will answer as many questions as I can during the uh, end of the presentation. I will only say your first name so you know I'm answering your question. I will read your question out loud for the group and then I will do my best to answer it uh this is the second session of this fraud conversation that i've had today uh first session had some great questions and i'm hoping the second session does as well so please bring your questions it makes it a lot more fun uh if you're here today you're here for our new york workers compensation webinar we do this monthly it roughly follows the outline of my new york workers comp handbook which i hope everybody watching and listening has a copy of The first Monday of the month, my partner Tashia Razul, who leads the construction team, does a construction webinar. Second Monday of the month, we do our risk transfer webinar. It's one of the chief ways uh, we help clients reduce their overall exposure. Third Monday of the month, that's this Monday. Hello, everybody. Uh, We're here to talk about New York workers' comp issues. And the fourth Monday of the month is always dedicated to New Jersey. So I encourage you, if you haven't come to any of those other webinars or those topics might appeal to someone else in your office or at your company, send them our way we have a good time on these conversations all right let's talk a little bit about fraud in new york and this is a fun topic i'm going to try to make it as real as possible by talking about real cases but i do have to spend a second or two just explaining jurisdictionally what fraud means in new york now uh fraud uh as a defense is raised pursuant to section 114a and that says Uh, that a claimant is committing a fraud when they quote for the purpose of obtaining disability compensation or to influence any determination related to the payment thereof, knowingly makes a false statement or representation as to a material fact. If that happens, there is a mandatory penalty that they are disqualified from receiving any wage compensation or money directly attributable to that false statement or representation. And as you can see there, uh, I bolded the word knowingly in this quote, because that's our chief uh, thing that opposing counsel says. They like to say, well, they didn't know they were committing a fraud or they didn't do this on purpose, judge. Uh, well, interesting. They, they said something that has led to them obtaining a benefit that they're not really truly entitled to. And I believe that's the knowingly part. And so we make that argument all the time. Uh, now, in order to be deemed a fraud, they have to be doing this to obtain some payment of compensation. Uh, and that is something that, you know, we are able to show quite easily. Hey, we're paying for medical care that we're not supposed to be paying for. We're paying for lost time benefits, or they're using this to try to beef up their uh, award for permanent residual disability. What kind of actions can be committed by a claimant that, co- that constitute fraud? Well, it's a lot of things. First of all, false statements. And false statements don't just mean testimony, right? The claimant in a lot of these cases is signing documents or claim forms. When they sign those documents, those claim forms, they're saying everything in here is true. And once that's submitted to the board, that can be the basis uh, for the false statement. How about when they don't tell us things that are important and relevant? Uh, Omissions of relevant facts, including testimony made to the judge or in any filed document, and by the way, that includes medical documents, can constitute the fraud. Uh, How about when they just exaggerate symptoms to the physician? I'm going to point out to you some case law and some decisions we've got. We're just exaggerating your symptoms and complaints. Constitutes fraud. Uh, Concealing work activity, that's a very basic one. That's where the claimant is literally working somewhere or working in a different capacity and they're not telling anyone they're actually working. Uh, And of course, uh, one of the most common and the one that I think we're going to talk a lot about here is concealing prior injuries. Uh, Concealing prior injuries is... Uh, absolutely fraud, that's the fraud of concealment. What type of penalties uh, is the claimant facing when they commit fraud? Well, there's really three. The first one's a mandatory penalty. And that mandatory uh, penalty is, if the claimant has been deemed to have committed fraud, They are disqualified from future benefits or from from current benefits related to that fraud. So, if they're saying, Judge, I haven't been able to work for a year, but it turns out they have been working for a year, that one year period of benefits that they might have been entitled to if they weren't lying, uh, they are no longer entitled to it. That's a mandatory penalty, meaning the judge doesn't really have discretion to not apply that penalty. There are two discretionary penalties that the judge can apply. Pretty commonly, the judge will prohibit them from refu- from receiving future compensation. Uh, it's been also a little bit popular recently among judges. Uh, instead of prohibiting them from receiving future compensation forever, which they can do, by the way, they'll say, oh, for the period of the next three years, claimant is disqualified from future benefits. So that's a possible discretionary penalty they can have. And the last one is restitution. And again, this is discretionary. The judge doesn't have to Uh, order this, but they can order that the claimant reimburse the company or the insurance carrier uh, for the proceeds of the fraud. And that's rarely uh, granted, but we've got a couple decisions that have granted us that in the last year. So I'll talk about that. Let's talk about a case that uh, was actually handled by one of our associates here. I'm not even going to say the first name of this claimant. Uh, I can't even say Who cares? Uh, This is a uh, case that was just decided by the board panel in July 2020. Uh, It's a 2018 right shoulder injury. And what we learned is that the claimant in his C3 form, and this is the employee claim form, is the C-3, said, I have had no prior injuries to this body part. Then went a step further and denied having prior injuries to this body part to both their treating physician, that was their surgeon in this case, and also our IME doctor. Well, we learned uh, by looking at the Claims Index Bureau report that not only had this claimant had five prior claims involving the same body part, they actually had two subsequent claims, two uh, alleged injuries occurring from new accidents for which they filed claims against different insurance uh, insured parties for the exact same body parts. Now, I know what you're saying, Greg, that's terrible this must be the most unlucky person in human history to have had seven accidents involving the same body parts either that or maybe they're a professional plaintiff you figure it out Uh, however we were able to show the court look here's the claims index bureau report and here are the records we obtained in furtherance of defending this uh that shows that there were multiple prior claims for the same body part and so the claimant was clearly trying to mislead the court or conceal this Uh, By stating in their employee claim form, again, that's a signed sworn document, as well as in their testimony before the court, and then as well in their statements to their treating surgeon, their treating physicians that they've had no prior accidents. Well, not only did they have prior accidents, Judge, but we were able to prove they actually had subsequent accidents, made claims for motor vehicle accidents involving the exact same body part. The claimant comes in the court, and of course, they have an explanation for everything. Uh, they were saying things like, well, I thought it was only asking me about work-related accidents, and I didn't know about new accidents counted and all sorts of things. End result is uh, we did, were successful in having the judge be, find this a fraud. Uh, that The fraud in this case was concealment of prior uh, injuries to the exact same body part. The attorney here who uh, 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 prosecuted this case on behalf of the employer uh, was Connor Weatherington. Good job, Connor. Second case, uh, this is one that was uh, defended by my partner, Tashia Rasul. It's a construction case. Uh, This one was decided in August of 2020, Uh, and this is an interesting one as well. 2019 neck injury was the basis of the workers' compensation claim. Again, denies prior injuries on that employee claim form, denies prior accidents, injuries, or treatment to the same body part, in their executed c-3.3s and those are your medical releases so here's a here's a claimant who's signing an employee claim form saying i've never had any prior injury to my neck and then uh, is telling us in response to us serving them with a request for medical releases saying i've never had any uh care to this body part again denying tr- uh, prior care uh to both the treating physician and the ime doctors which i think is really uh, key here uh, you know, they're, it's in the medical records that they're disputing that they had any prior injuries. In this case, we didn't use an ISO or Claims Index Bureau report. In this case, we used a medical canvas and learned yeah, they've had many multiple prior hospitalizations. We went and subpoenaed those records. Uh, And this is a time-consuming process to go through and get those records. But guess what? We found records that clearly showed uh, that they had prior neck injuries and prior treatment to their neck that they were not disclosing or they were concealing from their current treating physicians. That was sufficient for the board to apply not just the mandatory penalty for fraud, but also discretionary penalties. Um, And that discretionary penalty was that they actually had to reimburse us our money. And that was um, sustained by the board panel reviews of the appeal of that. And again, uh, that, was, uh, that case was handled and the appeal uh, successfully defended by Tashia Razul of my office. All right, uh, let's look at another one. And here's another type of concealment uh, where the claimant's concealing current work activity and maybe trying to explain it away. And again, claimants always have a story for everything. This is a 2019 case, and this is a reported decision. This is a, 20, a 2013 date of loss back injury case. Uh, claimant worked for an auto body shop. In 2015, the carrier raises, hey, we think this person has other employment. In fact, we think he's working for his landlord or perhaps for some landscapers. We've got some conflicting information coming out. Turns out that he's working as a laborer in multiple landscaping businesses. And the way he was caught was he was getting paid checks by them and cashing the checks. We obtained multiple paychecks from this claimant that he was cashing from multiple sources, indicating that he was working during this subsequent period of time. Claimant, of course, has a story for everything. And he says, well, look, uh, my father, he's undocumented. He has no working papers. He's a pre-citizen, whatever you want to call him. And I was just cashing his paychecks for him. And all those other paychecks from the other places, oh, those were just favors I was doing for friends. And those weren't really paychecks. I was just being a nice guy and cashing their checks for them. Um again, they have a story for everything. Uh the judge didn't buy it. And again, this is a situation in which concealing uh the uh work activity led to a fraud finding um uh being found. So uh these are cases that demonstrate to you that a not revealing prior injuries, not being forthcoming with your physicians, uh uh falsifying your employee claim form to say you never had an injury to these body parts, uh, or even going after and, and trying to figure out that there was some work activity. And and these are pretty straightforward frauds. Um, And these are frauds that are being demonstrated by the basically just good detective work, right? Using the Claims Index Bureau report, using a medical canvas, uh, going through uh, paychecks and trying to figure out who's cashing them where. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about another kind of uh, fraud that we see, uh, which is utilizing surveillance to undermine symptom exaggeration, Uh, or just claims by the claimant, which are unfounded. I have uh, very personal, uh, singular ideas about how best to utilize surveillance. And really, it's about overcoming objections, because generally speaking, I believe the surveillance video, if it's good, and if it demonstrates the claimant, um, you know, participating in activities or even working, uh, should absolutely be great parole evidence, uh, uh, strong evidence in court, uh, for what the person's actual capacity is. And there's lots of ways of using surveillance, and one of the ways of using it is, of course, to provide it to their treating physicians and saying, look, this person's coming to you and saying they can barely move and barely walk, uh, but now here's a video of them, you know, playing badminton in their backyard. Does that change your opinion? All right, so that it would be a situation where the surveillance video really has no surprise value. Uh, oftentimes, it's not surveillance video that we're providing to them. Uh, to the physicians or to our IME doctors, it's video that we're taking from the claimant's own social media, right? So uh, everybody's got social media and they've placed themselves under self-surveillance, essentially. When well, we get those videos, we get those records, we provide it to the IME or to the treating physician and ask them to comment on it. Uh, so that has no surprise value. And it's typically because that video is either created by the claimant or we think it's so strong uh, and can undermine these claims of disability. That we're, gonna, we're, we're gonna waive the surprise value of it. The second type of surveillance is video that does have surprise value. Again, the claimants testified, but we've gone out and got video of them acting in ways that clearly exceed the limitations that they're explaining to their treating provider or employer. And we wanna surprise them with it at trial. So surveillance is a wonderful way of surprising a a witness. Uh, We do have to admit or we have to state in advance that we're gonna utilize surveillance video of of the claimant, but we don't turn it over to them until after they've testified. So this is a great way to underline you know, those malinger complaints, those claims that have been kind of stretched or drawn out, uh, this is a great way to go and, and attack them. The best way to present surveillance with, uh, testimony in court is with the surveillance agent themselves saying, I'm the person who took the video. They authenticate the video. They state that the video has not been edited or augmented or changed in any way. We simply play the video for the judge of compensation. It has to be submitted to the board as well. Uh, and then we let the uh, claimant's attorney cross-examine the surveillance agent. That's the simplest way that this testimony comes in. And if you've done this for a little while, you know that claimant's attorneys love to cross-examine our uh, surveillance agents, and they basically take uh, one of two tacks. Uh Tack one is to say, uh, how many days did you watch this claimant? And The surveillance agent says, "Well, I was hired to watch them for three days, and on uh, one of the days, I I found this surveillance video of them that shows them, you know, playing badminton and and shooting hoops in their backyard." Okay, so uh, the claimant's attorney will try to undermine the value of that surveillance by saying, "Look, there's good days and there's bad days. Is it possible you got them on a good day?" Surveillance agent goes, "Well, I got them doing this day. I don't know how good he was. Well, you watched him for three days and." Uh, For two of the days, isn't it possible that he was laying in bed in deep pain and couldn't move? Yes, I guess that's possible. And they attempt to undermine the validity of that video by suggesting that because the surveillance agent really only saw them for a short period of time, the rest of the time they were were somehow an invalid in some strange way. Uh, Now, uh, my opinion on that is, first, uh, we should always be using a different surveillance agent for each day of surveillance. And the reason for that is we're only going to present the surveillance video that's useful. If you do it that way, you never have a surveillance agent who comes into court and says, yeah, I watched them for five days and I only caught them once. Instead, you'll only present the surveillance video that's useful to you and you'll bring them into court and you'll say, judge, uh, I asked this person to watch them and I will lead by asking the question, surveillance agent, how many days did I ask you to watch this person? And they'll say one day and i will say, okay, what video did you get? Well, here it is. We'll hit play and we'll watch the video and show the person playing badminton or basketball or whatever they're up to. Uh, and that's quite compelling because now from the judge's perspective, it looks like Greg only assigned the surveillance agent one day. Surveillance agent caught them doing stuff that one day. Huh, that's pretty compelling. And it's immune or it overcomes that good day, bad day type of cross-examination that claimants attorneys love to engage in. In order to do this, of course, you've got to engage counsel. And the reason for that is all of the days of surveillance that didn't lead anywhere those videos or those statements from those investigators, we never present them in court. They're their work product. They're privileged. They never come into court. Uh, they haven't been presented. They can't be cross-examined. So that's the way to do that. It really does overcome that objection. It really works in every jurisdiction that I practice in. Um, I want to also remind all the people that are watching and listening that the surveillance agent's report is not discoverable and should never be admitted in court. Um, if you if You've worked with surveillance agents, you know they like to write these reports and tell you how great they did in their investigation. But generally, when we submit that to the council, to our adversary, all they do is when they cross examine the, the uh, surveillance agent is just cross examine them on the minor points of this report and try to trip them up. And it really sidetracks the entire, um, uh, I would say, thrust or the momentum of the video itself. And so, my advice to clients is absolutely never turn over the surveillance agent report. I believe it's privileged. I believe it is not important. And we've had many, many decisions. Um, Christian Cisan, my partner, in the case of Matter of Windows 2000, um, senior associate here, Jeremy Janis, Matter of PM Restorations, Tim Kane, partner, Matter of Nikki Contracting, Declan Gurley, partner, uh, Matter of Arthur G. Cassidy. All of these cases we've been successful in not having not allowing the surveillance agents report to be admissible to be relied on in court by opposing counsel uh, for the grounds for their cross-examination. And so uh, we feel quite strongly about not letting that report in, and that should be something that uh, really I think is a best practice in New York and in this jurisdiction. Now, Let's talk a little bit about some practicals. Let's talk about some cases in which um, out-of-court surveillance uh, has been utilized really successfully. First case, David Sweek versus City of Lackawanna. Uh, This case was decided in 2019, but it's so darn good I had to include it here. This is a firefighter uh, who had two injuries uh, in in two different years uh, to his neck. 2016, it's finally time to start talking about permanency, and it's time for that loss of wage earning capacity trial. So I know you're saying to yourself, wait a second, how does it take 16 years to reach permanency? I want to tell you, welcome to New York workers' compensation. But anyway, uh, the employer gets a functional capacity evaluation as part of the loss of wage earning capacity trial, which, by the way, is another best practice uh, for getting meaningful, useful information to undermine the claimant's capacity uh, claims. In the functional capacity evaluation, the claimant stated he couldn't even lift a gallon of milk, he can't lift his feet even to put on his socks, and he spends most of his day laying in a recliner in deep, deep pain. Huh. Meanwhile, we've got video which shows him working out hours, uh, multiple times a week, doing exercises, including uh, lifting uh, himself up, doing pull-ups, full body weight, pull ups and push ups. Again, same guy who says that he can't even lift a a milk jug uh, is able to do pull ups on a pull up bar and lifting weights uh, for hours and hours and hours on video. And so obviously this is a clear fraud in which the video directly refutes the statements given by him to his physicians and to the functional capacity evaluator. So very powerful evidence, clearly found a fraud, very straightforward case. All right. Uh, before we get into the live question answer, I just wanna remark that in general, you should win your fraud, fraud claims. Uh, in general, you should be thinking of this as a strategic move, not a tactical move. Um, you can raise fraud and retract it. Let's remember that as well. Uh, but when you do have good video, you should be attempting to win your case because that's what's gonna prevent us from receiving or getting these absurd results. All right. I'm hoping that there are some interesting questions for me to answer on this topic. I'm gonna open up the uh, question box over here. If you haven't typed your question in yet, it's time to do so. So far I see no questions. Either I did a phenomenal job uh, or everybody's scared of asking me a question. Don't worry, I'm not gonna embarrass you. Type your question in and I would love to answer it. I'm gonna maximize this box. Hopefully I can see uh, some questions popping up. All right, at this point I don't, oh, okay. Uh, Karen asked the question, Greg, what about sharing social media reports? No, don't no need to. So, social media is really interesting. Again, uh, all of these fools have placed themselves under self surveillance. Everything you post on Facebook, or Twitter, or YouTube, TikTok, whatever it is, this is all discoverable. Um, as a matter of course, and particularly in, going into any LWEC trial or any trial on permanency, we are asking for social media passwords. Oftentimes, that is a tactic that will get our adversary to start talking to us about settling a case. But I love these claims in which the person alleges that they have no work ability, they have, uh, you know, very limited education, schooling, you know, no diploma. They all claim that they have a learning disability so they can try to increase the size of their LWEC award. And then we've gone and got their social media and we find that they're writing in their social media on their facebook wall in english and polish so that showing that they're bilingual uh shows them doing all sorts of activities i have one social media case in which the claimant um was uh, performing uh, as a cheerleader at professional soccer matches uh while claiming that he was too disabled to do his job as a foreman at a construction site so we we've seen all sorts of things now Social media reports come in two ways. One, you hire a company, outside company, uh, your surveillance agent company, uh, your investigator, to go and get that social media information. Sometimes they can do it. Uh, It is currently unallowed. It's not allowed to um, friend them in order to obtain their information, and you can't cause your investigator to do that. But many people have unsecured social media in which what they're putting in Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, it's all public. So that's easy to get. You're just collecting it, and you're confronting them with it. I don't see a need to turn that report over because I'll actually ask them for their social media passwords and ask to download uh, all of their social media. And we've done that and we've been successful. In fact, in the case of Richard Joya, we we actually made the case law on that the the claimant has to turn over their social media passwords if uh, their social media uh, has parole evidence or evidence that is going to be important to demonstrating their actual functional abilities. And so for that reason, we don't generally even use the investigators reports when you do do it, you are gonna have to turn it over, Karen. So if you are getting a report from an outside party who's doing some kind of social media tracking uh, and you intend on relying only on that, uh, you will have to turn that over. But I think once you get that report from that outside party, that vendor that's providing that social media investigation, next step would be to get the person themselves to give you their passwords uh, so that we can go and grab that information and bring it right into court ourselves. And that's really the best way to do it. All right, David asked the question, uh, Okay, David asked the question, uh, is a question. Is If a claimant is represented and we ask a question as to offset survivor benefits in a death claim, and they don't respond to our request for benefits were applied. Not certain uh, what that question is asking. I'm going to repeat it again. If a claimant is represented and we ask a question as to offset survivor benefits and they don't respond to our request for benefits were applied, I'm not really sure what you're asking there, but in a in a dependency claim or survivor benefit death claim case, you're going to be asking for a C-62, which is the affidavit, the claim uh, which would establish the dependent or a state's right. Uh, in that case, they have to provide that to you. In fact, they can't be awarded. Uh, dependency benefits or death benefits without the C-62 affidavit, my recommendation is uh, treat it as a denied claim always, and you're going to use that C-62 to run your investigation. So I don't see a circumstance where they can't provide you with the information you're requesting and still be entitled to benefits unless you're stipulating to it, which by the way, I would never ever do. Uh, That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Uh, If you want to type in more facts, I can help you uh, more carefully on that one. All right, Jennifer asked the question, Greg, how about when our IME has them at a reduced disability, and their treating has them at temporary total disability? Okay, very common situation. If they are found working in any capacity, can we use that information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So interesting. Uh, First of all, our IME, hopefully, uh, is not gonna find them as disabled as the treating physician. We all know treating physicians in New York think that everybody are totally disabled. You can go out and run a marathon, go to their friendly doctor's office, and if it's one of the doctors that I've been referencing in our slides earlier, they're gonna find that you're totally disabled. So there's always gonna be that disc- uh, discrepancy there. And you know, as you can tell, I've done this a little while, so I'm a bit jaded about doctor's opinions in regards to a person's functional capacity. Anyway, uh, if you find them working in, that, in some capacity and they're telling their doctor they're totally disabled, yeah, I think that that's a challenge. Um, If your doctor's saying they can work and they are working to our capacity, probably not fraud, but I would be looking at the difference in the complaints and exaggerations that are making to their treating physician that are found in that report versus what you know this person's actually doing. So I think that is fertile ground to be looking at. Um, Dave says, could this be fraud? Yeah, uh, let me tell you something, Dave. uh, And I think he's referring back to his dependency claim. Yeah, if you've got a, a survivor claim or a death claim or dependency claim, and they're not forthcoming by executing that C-62, again, that survivor's affidavit, which has to list uh, their kinship or why they think they're entitled to dependency benefits, um, how they're entitled, what the level of support was, where the person lived, who were the members of the household, uh, what actual dependence, meaning offspring that they had, all those things. You know, there's something fishy there. So I would definitely be considering that that might be a candidate for a fraud investigation. All right, uh, that, those are some good questions. Oh, uh, Mary asked the question, Greg, I thought all video had to be presented, meaning if we did five days and only one day showed activity, I was under the impression that we had to present all five days, not just the one day that got footage. Can you clarify? Okay, no. Uh, this is the big thing I'm trying to uh, push. We've been doing this successfully with clients for years. If you're sending out the same investigator and saying, watch this person for five days, and the investor goes out there, and day one doesn't get any surveillance, but To prove that they were there, you know, they take a video of the person's front door for five seconds and go, look, I was here. And they do that second, third, fourth days, and they don't get any video. And then they go out the fifth day, and now they got the person, you know, today was the day for soccer practice. And they're taking their kids to soccer practice and kicking the balls and running around and setting up the nets, doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you might get stuck because your opposing counsel is going to ask your your investigator, how many days did you watch this person? They're going to say, five. Did you take video? Yes, I did. All right, let's see it. Now you have to show it all. Right. So you're gonna get stuck. That's why if you use my method, um, I should probably should probably patent it or something. Maybe we should call it the lowest method. Lowest method would be send out five different investigators for those five days of surveillance. The four days where you don't get compelling video. You just ignore those. Those never come out of your back pocket, meaning the contents of my litigation file. They're privileged. It's work product. It's an investigation we undertook, but we didn't intend to use it at trial. We didn't use it at trial, right? So it, it never comes out of the back pocket. But the one day of video that you did get, that was useful: setting up the nets, playing soccer, kicking around the ball, blowing the whistle, taking notes—all those things. That's the day we bring out. And the other four days, you're right, you don't produce them. That's uh, the trick or the or the protocol of that lowest method. I think I'm patented this now. I am patented lowest method. You've now focused the court on what's important, right? You've thrown out what's not important, and you've made yourself immune from that cross examination of good days, bad days. And that's why it's such a good, useful tool. I'm happy to share it with you. All right. Uh, let's see if you have any more questions. Do do do. Nope. That's it. Okay. Uh, well, this was fun, and thanks for the good questions i can't wait to see you guys next month i already talked about our schedule for webinars next month we're going to be talking about employee status and before you say to me greg that's a boring topic it's not going to be a boring topic we're going to talk about independent contractor status we're going to talk about gig economy workers we're going to be talked about lent and leased employees we're going to talk about temporary employees and we're going to talk about illegal employees so we're going to talk about all these things next week Uh, please join me and we'll have some more fun bring your questions Thanks for joining me today, everybody. I hope you have a great day.